Titus chapter 3. Tonight we'll consider verses 3 through 7. But in verses 1 and 2, we were reminded of the importance of the Christian's ambassadorship. It's true that we live our lives ultimately before an audience of one. And at the end of the day, the evaluation that really counts is the one that we receive from our Lord. My spiritual life is lived under my priesthood between God and me. No question about that. But God did not create us and then place us on an island devoid of others that he's also created. My life, while lived in a sense before God alone, is in another very real sense lived before my fellow man. The second sense is not a contradiction of the first, but it is by design complementary. We're ambassadors for Christ as we walk this planet. We may not want that job. And there are days when we may not do a very good job. But we have been appointed to the position nevertheless. Read with me the first two verses. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. This is the positive behavior that is expected of those who are ambassadors for Christ. The list is not exhaustive. I, I hope that's obvious. But these are qualities that are expected of every single one of us. Not just the elder, bishop, pastor, deacon, not just those in a position of leadership, but all of us have as a calling to conform to this list. And since a few of you just tuned in, let me read it one more time. Remind them to be, I know it's hard when you go through 30 minutes of prayer to get right into the, the message, but here's the good stuff. This, this is good stuff. It's right straight from the Word of God. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, that's the Word of God. I'm going to comment on that. If you've got to go back to sleep, this is the time to do it. For, in verse 3, Paul validates his point as to why Christ-like or Christ-pleasing behavior is required and should never be considered a bother. Our ambassadorship should never be considered a bother. So Paul goes back in time to what we once were and then tells us how we were delivered from that hopeless situation. Reflection upon our own former condition makes it easier for us to be mild and kind toward others. No, no, Paul is saying, for there was a time when we also once were. And that we means every single one of us. It means Paul, it means Titus, it means the Cretans, it means you, and it means me. We were all in this situation that we're going to read in verse 3. Now, verse 3 may be offensive to you, understanding that Paul's saying, you were this way. But this is the Word of God. And you might not have thought of yourself that way, but there are no exceptions to this list. None. We were all in a bad way. As far as salvation is concerned, we are all equally in a bad way before we came to Christ. Listen, listen to the list. And this is talking about you and me. We were also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Now, maybe, maybe you've never had yourself described that way. Probably wasn't put in any Christmas cards you just got. 
hey, my hey, brother, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts. That's probably not the qualities that you want to be remembered by. But that's the old us. And that's important for us to remember. Before we came to Christ, that list describes us. Let's go through it. We were foolish. Not only ignorant, but by nature actually unable to discern the things of the Spirit. The most intellectually gifted are often the most foolish. Sometimes I wonder if some folks are not too smart by half. Because they think they're smart enough to outsmart God. And they can't look at the plain things of God. The revelation of God, for example, that's found in nature. The revelation of God that's found in chemistry, that's found in physics, that's found in all the science. And they can't see God behind it. Sometimes I wonder if some folks are too foolish by half. But before we came to Christ, we're all said to be foolish. Disobedient. And this means disobedient both to divine and to human authority. This is all of us. Deceived. This means made to wander from the truth, living in a world of unreality, imagining that license is liberty. Though we considered ourselves to be free, we became slaves. This is all of us before salvation. This is the one that's probably offensive to you, but I'm going to read it anyway. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Allowing these strong evil desires to dominate our life and our conduct. There are at least... In my view, there are at least two poles of application of evil in the life of the unsaved. There's a pole toward which there is open evilness, open badness, something that's covertly, I'm rather overtly evil. And then there's another pole of people who are covertly evil. I hope you know what I mean. There's, um, There's the Adolf Hitlers of the world. And then there's the Mother Teresas of this world. And I, and I doubt Mother Teresa would even, Lot would not even want to admit it. How could you put those two in the same breath? In fact, how could you put me in the same breath with Adolf Hitler? Or you take a Larry Flint or any piece of dirt trash that's out there that you want to fill in the blank, and say, I can see that. I can see how they were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. But this list gives no outs. It means you you fill in the blank to the person you think is so sweet and so nice and so loving that God could never condemn them to hell. No way. They've got to cut that person some slack. I heard a lot about this with Princess Diana. Didn't you, when she died? You know, she did so much good. Remember those landmines? Remember all that? Remember remember how she was was a, a crusader for all kind of charitable causes? No way God could send her to hell. Yes way. If she never trusted Christ, I don't know if she ever did or not. If she did, it was never made public, and this is not, I'm not here to, to trash her. I always, always uh, thought she was a very classy person under a very difficult circumstance. But the point is, there are two poles of evil, but both are evil. Before God, evil is evil, whether it's covert or overt. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, remember? He said, and I paraphrase, some of you think you're really hot stuff because you haven't murdered someone, but have you hated someone? Some of you think you're hot stuff because you haven't committed adultery, but have you looked upon a woman in lust? See, there's overt and there's covert, but both are evil. Both groups are equally lost. Both groups are equally lost. And until you get that, you've gotten very little about the Christian life. 
until you, until you let go of this idea that some are closer to heaven because of all the good works that they've performed, you have not gotten very far at all in your Christian life. And you're walking right down the path that Satan would love for you to walk down. As soon as you start thinking that the unbelievers' righteous acts start adding up and get them just a little closer to heaven where God, it wasn't very, it wasn't very hard for God to save them. I mean, they were just right there. They just had to be plucked up. Until you understand that all of us were the enemies of God before we came to Christ, you're never going to appreciate grace. And until you appreciate grace, there's little advance in the Christian life. I told you you might not like that, but all of us were in that boat. All of us were in the next category, spending our life in malice and in envy. All of us were hateful. Now, this is a word that's only used here in the New Testament, so it's difficult to translate, but other words that can maybe be imported here are odious, offensive, disgusting, and repulsive. It doesn't sound pretty, does it? I told you, it sounds offensive, but that's who we were before we came to Christ. We weren't good little, good little girls and boys of whom God should justly be proud we were sinners lost, as one of my friends says, as Hogan's ghost. I mean, we were just as lost as we could possibly be. That's who we were. And until we get that, there's a reason why Paul makes this list. It wasn't to offend you. It was to challenge you. Until we get it, that that's who we were in this hopeless estate, and then what Christ did to pull us out of it, then we're never going to be totally, truly, perfectly motivated to fulfill verses 1 and 2. So you see what Paul's done? He's given us the positive characteristics that we should have. It's a challenging list. Remember what it was? We're, not, we're, not supposed to, we're supposed to be ready for every good deed. We're supposed to obey authorities. We're supposed to not malign anybody to be uncontentious, gentle, showing consideration for everybody. There's a lot of people I don't particularly care to show consideration to. They're rude. They're boors. And I would just as soon walk around the block not to have to say hello to them. But that's not what this verse says. I have a responsibility even to people that aren't lovely. Did you get that? I have a responsibility to people who aren't lovely, and there's a part of me that doesn't like that. And Paul knew it, the Holy Spirit knew it, and spoke through Paul and said, Oh, by the way, sport, you weren't exactly that lovely when Christ died for you. Now, I'm supposed to show kindness to them. Christ showed a, a maximum kindness, we'll see that word come up again in a minute, by saving us when we were this way we were hateful odious offensive disgusting and repulsive which naturally leads to hating one another if that's who i am at my core and i don't care how you cover it up you can put a bow on a sow and she's still a sow you can cover up ugliness and it's still ugly i'm talking about inside it's still ugly so if we're hateful, it will lead to hating. Does that make sense? If that's who I am as an individual, that's what it's going to lead to. This is the natural result when sinful people and all their sinfulness are nevertheless forced somehow to live, work, and associate with one another. If you are a hateful per person at the core, and before you came to Christ, whether you like to ever admit it or not, you were hateful in the, at the core then it's inevitable if you put people around you, you're going to hate. Hateful people are going to hate. Loving people are going to love. 
That's why a believer filled with the Holy Spirit is going to love and be kind like nobody's business. But one who is an unbeliever, who is walking in, in perpetual carnality with God, is going to end up being hateful, even if it's sugar-coated, like some bad medicine, the, the, the spoonful of sugar making the medicine go down. It's still medicine, even though it's covered up. Now, until we get that, I want you to pause and let that sink into every pore of your body. That's who you were. That's who I was. That's who Paul was. That's who Titus was, and that's who the Cretans were before we came to Christ, before we were rescued. Such we were at one time, Paul says. So let us not be too hard on the people who are still in that condition, but let us strive by Christ-like conduct to win them for Christ. That's the point. Now, where does this tie into the positive behavior stated, the negative behavior that's who we were before Christ, and now how do we mix the two together, or how do the two synthesize together? They synthesize together by Paul telling us, reminding us, what Christ did to save us. Okay? Now watch this part. This is, to say it's brilliant is a, is a hyperbolic understatement. Because the Holy Spirit's the one that did this. But I just love the way that he frames this argument. It's just beautiful. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, when we were lousy, no good, evil folks, Christ showed kindness to us and rescued us. Here's the point. If he did that while we were that way, is it that big of a bother, really, for us to show kindness to someone else? That's not even, to the, to the degree that Christ, it's not even close to the same kindness. Is it really that big of a bother? We act like it is. Let's just be up front. Especially you live in a place like Houston. You live in a place like Houston right about now, and you try to go in the Galleria with all the traffic over there and people cutting you off and, and just saying ugly and mean things to you and being rude. It's in, and I'm supposed to be kind to them? Yeah. That's exactly what it says. That's exactly what it says. And that's just my example. You'll have to fill in your own. But all of us are in the same boat. So we are to perform the functions of verse 1 and 2 from the motive of gratitude from what we ourselves have received. So that's why Paul continues. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love toward man appeared, he saved us. What a contrast. What a contrast. In verse 3, we have man's inhumanity to man. Mankind, anybody that doesn't believe in total depravity has got their eyes closed. Never watches a news report or watches the wrong news. Because there is, there is man's inhumanity to man that is it's what seems like the greatest fever pitch in all of human history. And I am somewhat a student of history in certain areas, much more than others perhaps. But there's been man's inhumanity demand for a long, long time. But it does seem to be reaching a fever pitch in the day in which we live.
Maybe it's just reported more. I'm not sure. But it's at least the, the observation of man's inhumanity to man is incredible. So you have that pictured in verse 3. And then in verse 4 you have God's kindness and love for man. Remember that Paul writes as one who has in his own life experienced all this. As, as one writer said, he does not stand next to his story, but he himself is part of it. For this reason, the words about the kindness of God our Savior and his love toward man are warm and tender, as was the heart of the Apostle Paul, who once wrote, The Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. I love this expression, the kindness and love toward man. It's really one concept. The verb here appeared in the, is in the singular. So there are two items, but it's one concept in Paul's mind. The expression is, is found in other places, but the content as used here in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, is unique. The, the phrase, love toward man, is really one word in Greek. It's, it's philanthropia. Philanthropia. You might can hear a, an English word that we've gotten from the philanthropy. That's what the word really transliterates to. Now, that's not a great translation, especially in today's world, because the English word philanthropy has, has now attached a certain meaning to it. Uh, somebody like a, a Bill Gates, who gives millions and millions of, of dollars away to, uh, to charities. And I'm, I'm happy that he does, um, but he's got billions. And the thing is, that's not going to... He could give billions, which he's not going to do till he dies, probably. But, I mean, he's not. And that's not going to earn him any favor with God. That's why I'm not going to translate this, uh, the God who is a philanthropist. Because today's meaning doesn't even come close. It, it really is to be translated, as New American Standard did, his love for mankind appeared. Now, in order to make us all the more ready to help those, who are yet unsaved, and to prevent us from ever saying, but they do not deserve our help, and I know you've thought that because I have. There are people, you want to challenge yourself? Think of somebody right now that you really don't want to pray for their salvation. Be honest with yourself. And I assume at least eight out of ten of us, there's somebody that would come to our mind. They are such lousy human beings. They have been part of that man's inhumanity to man that was so great, we really don't want to would you check that for me? They really don't want to. You don't want them saved. Who, wasn't it Ted Bundy that was, that was given the gospel by Dr. Dobson? Dr. Dobson has a video on that that shows Christians holding signs up on, his, on the way to his execution. Some of the most vile and, and, and ugly, ugly things that have been said. Now, Ted Bundy was a low-life human being. He, he was a, a mass murderer. He also came to Christ right before he died. Christians should want justice. But sometimes we take one step over that line and want vengeance. And Dobson's film on that is, is great at pointing that out. Um, there are a lot of people that didn't want Ted Bundy saved. They would have much preferred he died and gone to hell. There were actually people mad at Dobson for giving him the gospel. That's the truth. That's the truth. There were people mad at Dobson for, for visiting him. But we should never say they don't deserve our help. 
because we didn't deserve God's help in the first place. We didn't deserve salvation either. He does see, Paul makes this point by pointing out that negatively the Father saved us not by works which we ourselves had performed in a state of righteousness and positively by saying according to our own mercy. In verse 5, actually in the Greek text, the not on the basis of deeds done in righteousness is right up front. It's as strong as Paul can say it. We are not saved by good works. I don't know how many of you have ever attempted to read a book on world religions. Maybe you've taken a course on world religions, and it can get really, really confusing. But if you break it down into general categories, it's really not that hard. If you break it down into categories of those who believe in an infinite personal God and those who don't, and you can divide everybody out pretty well right there, and you've got people who believe in an infinite personal God, basically, the, the Jews, the Christians, and, and Islam. And it's debatable about Islam, but just grant me that for right now. If you have people that believe in an infinite personal God, I'm not talking about the, the Buddhist who really doesn't believe we have an essential self, that we just, we're just a bunch of particles that kind of explode and go off into all other kind of particles when we die. I'm oversimplifying, but that's basically it. But I'm talking about people who believe that there's a God and we're answerable to him then they can, all, they can really all be divided up into two categories as well. Those who are trying to, earn, trying to earn God's favor by their own goodness, and those who realize that they can never be good enough and, and seek the favor of God through Jesus Christ. That's really the only two categories. People say, well, what about, what about our Jewish friends? What about a Jewish friend who is really wanting to, to have a relationship with God but just doesn't think that Jesus was the Messiah? I believe that that's a theologically impossible category. For if, for if a Jewish person understands that they're a sinner and following the pattern of Abraham by grace through faith wants to have a relationship with God, then God the Holy Spirit, it is incumbent upon God the Holy Spirit to demonstrate to them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. I don't have a theological category. There is not one scripturally for a Jewish friend to say, I want salvation the way that Abraham had it. I'm a sinner and I need it desperately. Yahweh, I place my faith in you. I just don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. That's not going to happen. Most of our Jewish friends are either getting to heaven in their minds because they're Jewish, or they're getting to heaven in their minds because they're good. You don't have that other category. Islamic people feel like they're getting to heaven because they're good. I mean, there's a list of several things, you know, uh, going to um, Mecca in one's lifetime, you know, praying five times a day, performing good works and so forth, and, uh, and, and some other things. But, but essentially, it's a work salvation. The Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a works salvation. Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. It's a works salvation. It's either works or grace. That's your choice. Sometimes we have people come by our homes, we have trouble remembering those verses. This is one of them that I that I ask you for your own good and for the people that are going to come visit with you. Memorize this one. It's not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. You read that? It's not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Same thing Paul says in Ephesians two eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved. It, it's a gift of God, not of works. You can't get any more clear than that. So it's really, it's really not that hard. People are either trying to earn their way to heaven. Or they're, going, or they're getting there by grace through faith. 
If they're getting there by grace through faith, they're already saved. They have eternal life. If they're trying to earn their way to heaven, they can try all day long. It's not going to happen. Not by works which we have performed in a state of righteousness. The implication really is that there are no such works. I hope you got that. Neither Paul nor anyone else has ever performed such a work. For before God, we're all uh, God, before God in His holy law, we're all by nature under sin. So the point is, you can do a, you can do a million good works, and they don't add up to the type of good work that it takes to earn your, yourself favor with God. If men are saved at all, it is only according to God's mercy. Grace and mercy are really two sides of the same coin. Most would describe grace this way. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is us being given something that we don't deserve. Mercy is the other side of the coin, which is saying we're not getting something that we do deserve. We, we deserve hell. We're not getting it. That's mercy on God's part. And then, on top of that, the Holy Spirit is the agent. We are washed clean when we appropriate faith, by faith, the work of Christ on the cross. All sins are forgiven at that particular moment. So we're, according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the mind. The term regeneration, as applied to individuals, really only occurs here in the New Testament. I don't know if you knew that or not. We have doctrine, the doctrine of reconciliation, but this is the only place that the word actually occurs. But it it is in, implied many, many times in the New Testament. Uh, literally means born again. But all the word, although the word occurs here only once, the idea occurs in dozens of passages. The one that we've studied most recently is John chapter 3. Burkhoff defines regeneration this way, as the act by, of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in man. The governing disposition of the soul is made holy, and the first holy exercise of this, dispens- this disposition is secured. The act of God by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man. Please note, regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit. This stands to reason for the... In Scripture, it is especially the third person of the Trinity who is represented as the bestower of life. It's also spiritual life. Also, it's the Holy Spirit who takes the lead, as it were, in making men holy. Regeneration gives rise to the process of renewing. Regeneration is instantaneous. Renewing is a process. It's a lifelong process. But regeneration is a radical change. So that those who beforehand were loaded down with the evils of verse 3 are now at least in principle clothed with the virtues that are mentioned in verses 1 and 2. We're not not verse 3 anymore. That's not who we are anymore. And that's due to regeneration. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, Whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. God the Father not only gives us his Son, but he also pours out his Spirit. Now, the the specific reference here is to Pentecost. But the Spirit, having once established his personal residence in the church, never leaves it again. Not until the resurrection. Not until the rapture where the church leaves and the Spirit leaves with it. Therefore, Paul can say that he poured the Spirit out upon us. You see the link? The link? He poured that out upon Pentecost, but he also poured it out upon us because we're part of that church that began on the day of Pentecost. 
verse 7 as we finish this up, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our former state, as described in verse 3, is over with. The blessings described in verse 4 through 6 have been received and are being received. Their purpose is now stated that in order that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs in hope of life everlasting. Being justified doesn't mean being put in a position as just as though I'd never sinned. That was a popular definition of justification that was, that was well known around the early 1900s. The problem with it is it really doesn't describe to be justified. We studied this in the book of Romans about a year and a half ago, but let me quickly remind you. To be, to be justified is to be declared righteous. It includes the forgiveness of sins, but it's much more than that. It's to be declared righteous. It's God handing his righteousness to you and now saying you once were unrighteousness, now you're righteous. The scriptures never talk of justification being lost. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. It is deliverance from the curse of God because that curse was placed upon Christ. And if you trust Christ, then that gift is yours. It brings peace to the soul, the peace that passes all understanding, according to Romans 5. It fills the heart with such thanksgiving that it produces in the life of the believer motivation for good works. In the scriptures, eternal life is viewed as a present reality for the believer. It's something to be enjoyed now. But for the fullest experience of eternal life, we will, of course, have to wait. But we do not wait as though the outcome is in doubt. We wait with hope, which scripturally is confident expectation, for what has been promised. God keeps his promises. That's why hope is not a passing fancy. When a Christian says, I have hope, they're not talking about, I hope so in the way that we use it in English today. Because God's the one that's promised it. So while eternal life is yours now, it is, it is very, very true that the fullest expression and enjoyment of it will await eternity. Although you can enjoy it to some extent even now. And that's what John challenges us to do. In summary, we have been rescued from a life of sin and death by the kindness and by the love of God. When this is recalled to mind, Christian service and Christ-like behavior under the function of our ambassadorship will never be considered a bother. Heavenly Father, we are appreciative of what's been done for us. And if we're not, I do pray that we would seriously stop set everything else aside and consider who we were before we came to Christ and what was done in order to bring us to him. Father, I pray that we would not be complacent with this incredible gift. Turn our focus so on ourselves that we forget our Savior. That we begin to consider your commands a bother because people aren't so lovely. Father, all of us in this room recognize that we weren't so lovely either when you exercise kindness toward us, and when you exercise love toward us. May we now be motivated as we go forth from this place to do the same. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.